0: The year was 1939. World War II had just begun, and 20 year old Jack Jennings was drafted into the British Army. And after a few months of basic training, he was deployed to the island of Singapore. Within weeks of his deployment, The British generals realized that they were severely outnumbered and ultimately the British force in Singapore surrendered to the Japanese. So Jack and 500 of his fellow soldiers were herded into a tennis court where they lived for the next five days. And in the tropical heat of the equatorial country there, They were only given a little bit of water and maybe a biscuit or two. Then after five days, they were loaded into trucks for the 1,100-mile journey to a prisoner of war camp in Thailand. Very difficult conditions there as well. They only got a little bit of rice and maybe a little bit of sugar and some watery gruel every day. Jack said that there were three or four funerals Every day. And then things got worse. They were loaded into boxcars and taken by rail five days deep into the Thai jungle to work on what became known as the death railway. Jack said they beat you up for the slightest thing. If they thought you weren't working hard enough or weren't working right enough, you'd get a beating. Four men tried to flee. They were recaptured, and you can imagine how that ended. Then cholera broke out. Jack said that there were 15 bodies a day being carried out. In fact, he said that his best friend who slept next to him each night one morning just didn't wake up. Jack said he just gave up. So after four years of this, you can imagine the condition of these prisoners of war. After four years, the way they found out that their rescue was imminent was when the Allied aircraft flew over the the prisoner of war camp and dropped leaflets telling them that the war was over. Jack weighed 84 pounds. When asked how he survived all of that, He said, I never gave up hope. I never gave up hope. You know, it's a funny thing, hope. Dale Archer, who's a clinical psychiatrist, said that hope is often the only thing between man and the abyss. As long as an individual has hope, they can recover from anything and everything. Hope is the belief that circumstances will get better. It's not a wish for things to get better. It's the actual belief. And it's been said that a man can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. You know, and I'll admit, I don't know exactly how scientific that is, But it speaks to the power of hope. It actually reminds me of a story that I heard about a man that was walking by a little league baseball field and saw a game going on. And he went up to the dugout and he started talking to one of the boys in the dugout. And he said, he said, how's the game going? And the boy said, well, it's 18 to nothing. We're behind. And the man said, well, that must be pretty discouraging. And the boy said, why? We haven't batted yet. You know, if only hope was always that easy, right? But where do you find hope when the doctor is doing tests and can't figure out what's wrong? Where do you find hope when the bank account is on fumes? Where do you find hope when your boss comes in and says, You're done here. Where do you find hope when your spouse says it's over? And you might say, this morning, none of that describes me. I'm on completely the other end of the spectrum. Great. Be thankful. Things are going great for me. My job is doing well. My family is doing great. I'm making more money than I've ever made before. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum... I have the same question for you. And that's our big question for today. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? What do you put your hope in? And whether you're at the pinnacle of success or maybe you're at the end of your hope rope, whether you're a Jesus person or not, whether you're even a church person or not, if you don't get this question right, if you don't answer this question, you're going to struggle to make sense out of life. So I'm going to invite you to listen in as we talk about what Jesus' hope looks like. And we're going to be in the book of First Peter and you can get your phone out or you can be turning there. We'll get there in just a second. But can I tell you, while you're doing that, can I tell you that God has woven hope into the human DNA, into the human story, into the human existence since the beginning of time? There's more than 50 references to hope in the last 27 books of the Bible. But the truth is that biblical hope looks different than the way we usually define hope. Right? I mean, for most of us, Hope is more wishful thinking than anything else, right? I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope I get a promotion. I hope I get that job. I hope my children are doing well. I hope that my family is safe. I hope that my team can catch a fly ball to win the national championship. It's too soon for that. Still too soon for that. Sorry, sorry, now I know. Um, We're going to see... If you don't know what that means, you need to ask one of the people that groaned. We're going to see today that Jesus' hope is different than wishful thinking. Jesus Jesus' hope carries certainty. Jesus' hope carries certainty. Jesus' hope carries certainty. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, a contemporary. And in the first century, about 30 years after Jesus had risen back to heaven, Peter was the leader of the church in Rome. And during that time, hope was in really short supply. Nero was the emperor of Rome. And can I tell you, this is one bad dude. Nero killed his mother. He also killed his first wife. He very likely killed his second wife. And in July of 64, in the first century, Rome was engulfed in flames. The entire city was in flames. Hundreds of buildings and homes had been destroyed. Thousands of people were left homeless. The fire raged for six days and it was finally put out only to mysteriously reignite and come back to life again. And the historians of that day almost unanimously concluded that not only had Nero set the fire in the first place, he very likely is the one that reignited the fire. Why? Because he wanted to destroy Rome's run-down buildings so that he could build memorials and monuments to himself. So people were ready to revolt. And so Nero was, and Nero was looking for a scapegoat, and Christians were already unpopular. And so they were an easy target for him. And so he began persecuting the Christians. And I told you he was a terrible person. Let me tell you how he persecuted Christians. He took some and wrapped them in animal skins and then set packs of wild dogs loose on them. He took some and tied them to the back of a chariot and drugged them through the streets of Rome. He fed some to lions. And then in probably what is the most heinous act, he took live people, dipped them in tar, hung them on a pole, and set them on fire to provide light for his outdoor evening parties. And it was in this seemingly hopeless setting that Peter wrote the book that we know as 1 Peter to those that are suffering. Peter's message was at that time and is now for people that need hope. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He starts off and he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop right there. I don't know exactly who is reading this, but in that context, if I had received this message, I would have thought either Peter is delusional. He has no idea what's going on. Or maybe he knows something that we don't. So let's keep reading. Peter says in his meaning God's in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, a cynic is going to look at that and say, see, there it is. Christians invented heaven so they could feel better about life. Christians need hope. And so they conjured up this idea of heaven. But heaven's not a human creation. It was Jesus himself who said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus' hope carries certainty life may look bleak but jesus said that for the followers his followers can look to the future with hope because he's already told them how things are going to turn out see jesus hope is living with a certain future and this isn't a, this isn't a perfect analogy but it'll have to do a couple of few months ago i was watching a replay of a football game from last fall and yes at the risk of being that guy i was i was doing that it was a game between the university of oklahoma and the university of texas oklahoma won by the way in just in case you were interested but that's important because when i watched the game i was really nervous because texas is tough And I have just enough Texas acquaintances that I used to call friends. I have Texas acquaintances that when Texas wins, I hear about it from every one of them. But that's what happened when it was live. But when I was watching it, when I was watching the replay of it, because I already knew the outcome, I was relaxed. I enjoyed. I actually lived in anticipation of the ending. And the future can be like that for a Jesus follower, living in anticipation of the future. Where is your hope? What have you put your hope in? Now, you may want to ask how I can know that Jesus hope carries certainty. My answer is because of the past. See, Jesus' hope carries certainty for the future because of the past. Let's walk through this passage again. We're going to walk through it backwards this time. At the very end, it says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That's the, the future tense of what he's talking about. It's kept in heaven for you. But the sentence right before that, he talks about why this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a past event. That had already happened. And what he's saying, what Peter's saying here is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this past event into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That's the future. Because of this past event, I can have confidence in the future. Because of what God's done in the past, we know he's faithful for the future. Let me give you another example. Right after creation, after sin had entered in the world, a seemingly hopeless situation in which God was about to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, in Eden with, garden of Eden, which He had created for them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said, or God said, in essence, I am going to send a deliverer for my people. to to address this sin problem that they have. That was in Genesis chapter 3. And God did that in Jesus. See, God's plan from the very beginning was to provide hope. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has always been hope. The gospel pivots on hope. The heartbeat of the gospel is hope. That God, that Jesus, God in human form, came to earth, died for your sin, though you might have forgiveness of your sin, he was buried and he rose again, forever obliterating the spiritual disconnect that you have from your heavenly father, That's the gospel. That's good news. That is hope. And so that's the first facet of Jesus' hope. Because we've seen how God moved in the past, we know that Jesus' hope carries certainty for the future. But it also carries certainty for the present. Let's look at the verse again. The first part, it says, in his great mercy, meaning God, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. That's present tense. Is your hope just a future tense hope? Or does your hope live in the present as well? And you might say, what does that look like? I want to introduce you to a young lady, a girl, really, named Gowrie. Because of her gender and the context in which she she was was born, the culture, the country, she's very likely relegated to a second-class existence. She very likely will not be educated beyond middle school. She'll have very limited opportunities. She will probably be given in marriage to a man that she may or may not know. By the time she's 18. Hope is pretty scarce in Gowrie's world. I met her when she was 14 years old, about the time that picture was taken. A couple of church planters and I had gone to their village, and when they were they invited us into their courtyard, where several generations of the same family all lived together. And we got the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them, to share the good news of Jesus with them. And there were a number of adults there. And in that culture, children are to be seen and not heard. And so, to be honest, Gowrie was really on the periphery. Largely didn't even notice her. We shared the gospel and then we said, who would like to know more about this Jesus? Of the 12 adults there, 11 of them said, we would like to know more. And so we had uh, the gospel of John in their language. And so we handed it out to those that that could read. And one of those was Gowrie. And I'll admit that I figured I'd probably never see her again. But as it happened, 10 months later, I was in that same area of the world. Working with the same church planters and they said, let's go to this village again. And I said, sure. We go, we can't go to the village without going to this same courtyard. So we go and visit this family again and they recognized us. We exchanged some pleasantries. And after, after we, after we did that, I kind of asked a little bit. I said, do you remember me? Oh yeah, we remember you. We remember you. I said, do you remember what we talked about? Nobody said anything except Gowrie, who piped up from the cheap seats and said, you talked about Jesus Christ. I said, that's right. We talked about the gospel. We talked about the difference it can make in a person's life. And we retold the story of Jesus. And I said, now this Jesus that we're talking about actually told a lot of stories. And I want to share one with you. Now, this story is an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. And so I told him the story about the father that had two sons and how the one son said, I want my inheritance now. And they gave, his father gave him the inheritance. He went out and blew it all, realized then he was in trouble, decided that it was better to live with his father as a servant than to where he was at that time. And so he, he took off and came back home. His father came running out to meet him and wrapped him in an embrace. And actually, threw a great celebration because his son had come home. And after I told that story, I said, uh, "What's the heavenly meaning? What do you think the heavenly meaning is of this story?" Crickets, except for Gowrie. Gowrie said, "The father in that story represents God." And the son in that story represents us. And regardless of how bad we've messed up. God is waiting to forgive us and to welcome us back home. And I said, "Gower, you're exactly right. And at that time I had the whole New Testament. In her language. And I gave it to her. I said, would you like a copy of the New Testament? She said, yes. And I gave it to her. And this is what. The face of hope looks like. I hope I never forget what the face of hope looks like. But it's not just Gowrie. Let me introduce you to Ashman. Ashman was introduced to the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ through two people that sit right down here Cindy Miller. Dana Schwedahl introduced Oshman to Jesus. That's the face of hope. Let me insert a little commercial here. I'm leading a global adventure team to this part of the world in October. I've got room for a couple more men and a couple of ladies. But I got to know this week that you're interested. But that is the face of hope. So Jesus' hope carries certainty for the present. I don't know about you, but I've always struggled to make sense of why things happen as they do. One doesn't have to look very far to see the hurt and the pain and the suffering in our world, right? Exploitation, broken relationships. Ugly divorce, job loss, cancer. The list can go on and on and on. But it makes me wonder, where is God in these awful situations? And I know sometimes these situations are my own doing. It's my sin that caused them. may also be someone else's sin that caused these situations. But nonetheless, I ask, where is God in these awful situations? I want to give you some hope today. Jesus' hope carries certainty for the present, even in difficulty. Jesus' hope carries certainty for the present, even in difficulty. And Peter knew this. Just a couple of verses after the one we looked at in verse 6, Peter said, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. I don't know if we have any silversmiths or goldsmiths in the room, but my guess is that this verse had a lot more meaning for the people that Peter wrote it to than it does for us today. As I understand the process of purifying gold in that time, what would happen is the goldsmith would heat up ore. And when it became molten metal, the impurities, the dross rises to the top and the goldsmith would scoop it off. Now, dross, in a word, is scum. It is the impurities. It is the, it corrupts and it taints the gold But when it's heated, it rises to the top and the goldsmith can scoop it off. And he does this. He heats it, scoops it off, heats it, scoops it off. I don't know how long he does this, how many times he does this. But I wondered, how does does he know when the gold is pure? And what I discovered is the goldsmith knows that that the gold is, the liquid gold is pure when he sees his reflection in the gold. See, what Peter's saying is that God's desire for you and for me is that we become reflections of Him. And He uses the heat of our circumstances to refine us. God uses everything, even the awful things, to develop us. And it's in the mess of life that we find that to be the most true when we best understand that. And and that should give us hope. Because God loves you too much to leave you as you are. God is not finished with you. Jesus' hope carries certainty for the present. There was a season when I was between jobs and weeks turned into months, turned into six months, turned into nine months, turned into 12 months, much longer timeline than I anticipated. But in that valley. God taught me things and he developed my character. He taught me patience. Taught me humility. Humility. Taught me a lot of things. And what I learned was when I'm in those situations, instead of asking, why me? To instead ask, where is he? Instead of saying, woe is me, why me, God? I've learned to ask, where is he? Because God is in those situations. And I can choose not to learn anything from those situations. Or I can choose to recognize that God can use this to make me more like him. There are those in this room that I've talked to that I know that have lost jobs, that have lost marriages, that have lost spouses, that have lost children, that are facing life-threatening illness. And they've said to me, you know, I've discovered one thing to be absolutely true in my life that I have experienced the touch of a loving God in my most difficult times. I've experienced the touch of a loving God in, in the most difficult places in my life. Francis Chan said that life can be a lot like making a cake. You know, when you make a cake it, from scratch, it's made up of a lot of ingredients that individually are pretty gross. Raw eggs, flour, butter, butter. And those ingredients by themselves don't taste very good at all. But when they're molded together in the proper proportions and they're mixed together and they're baked, a great thing emerges. See, so often we don't think of our circumstances like that. We forget that God has an end in mind to make us more complete, to make us more like him. Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. Fantastic book. I recommend it highly. He said, what's bad will always be bad. But God's grace will bring good out of a bad situation. What God accomplished through the crucifixion, the turning of evil to an unjust murder, of an unjust murder, into the good of salvation, he can do the same for us. We will never be delivered from suffering. But with God's help, we can be transformed by it. Here's a life principle for you. God is much more interested in your character than he is your comfort. We don't always like to think about that, but he is. He's more in turn. It's your character that will live through eternity, not your comfort. Paul said it like this in a verse that if you've been around church for any length of time, you're very familiar with, and maybe if you're not a church person, but you've heard, you may have heard this verse, you may not realize it's actually in the Bible. Paul said it like this We know that in all things, all things, all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the awful, We know that in all things, God works. God works. He's not a disconnected God. He's not a passive God. He's not an uninvolved God. God works. We know that in all things, God works for the good. Now, for far too long, far too many people have misunderstood this word good. They've taken it to mean that if I'm following Jesus, I'll have no difficulties. I'll have no pain, no suffering. Not only that, nobody around me. I won't even know of anybody. And so what happens is, because they've misunderstood this word good, when things like that happen, they lose hope. And they wonder, where is God? But he said, we know that in all things, God works for the good. Meaning, Paul was saying the spiritual good, the spiritual development. That's what he meant by good. See, God has a different definition of good, I believe, than we do. So in all things, God works for the good. For who? Of those who love him, those who are following Jesus, and those who have been called according to his purpose, those Who are obedient. So this brings me back to our big question. Where is your hope? When the diagnosis is dire. When the circumstances are grim. Or maybe when you're on the pinnacle of success. Where is your hope? Because, see, the depth of your hope is determined by who or what your hope is in. And if your hope is in you and your ability and your things and your stuff, when the bottom falls out, when things fall apart, all you'll be left with is you. But if you have Jesus' hope, you have certainty. And you know, there's probably no time in the human experience when we feel more helpless, hopeless, and vulnerable than at a funeral. First time, one of the first times I went to South Asia, I had the opportunity to see hopelessness personified. In that area that is vastly without Jesus, vastly without Jesus' hope, I was invited to go to a crematorium. Now, in that country, they do not bury their dead. They cremate them, obviously. And so, therefore, they don't embalm. And so, therefore, cremation happens within hours of death. And I was at this crematorium and saw a number of gurneys with bodies on them covered by orange cloths. As you can imagine, it was a very somber place. But there was one guy that caught my attention. Couldn't help but catch my attention. An elderly gentleman was laying on the ground next to one of these gurneys with a body and orange cloth on it. His arms wrapped around the body. He wasn't just sobbing. He was wailing. And not for just a few seconds. But for minutes, it ripped my heart out because I said, now I know what hopelessness looks like. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he forever changed the way that his followers view death. We experience loss and we suffering and sorrow but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Can I tell you, as far as we know, Jesus broke up every funeral that he ever attended. You know the story of Lazarus, right? In Luke 7, there's a story of a widow that was raised from the dead. In Luke 8, there's a story of a 12-year-old girl that Jesus rose from the, raised from the dead. You think about it, Jesus even messed up his own funeral, didn't he? Right? And maybe you have never experienced Jesus' hope. For you, hope has always been wishful thinking. My prayer for you is that God's love for you ignites hope within you. And that you begin to experience Jesus' hope today. Because if you, if your hope is in the God who loves you, you have something to hold on to. You have certainty. Or maybe you needed, or you need hope reignited today. You need to be reminded that hope is not just a future event, but that hope is, carries certainty for the present. See, the greatest proof of God and His love, which is what produces hope, is the cross. And it's in the cross that the past and the present and the future of hope all come together. See, cause Jesus' hope has a predictive past. The promise that God made to his people in Genesis chapter 3. Came through true when? At the cross. Jesus' hope has a certain future. Because of the cross. We can know. That we can have confidence in the future. And Jesus' hope. Is a very present reality. It's the cross that gives us hope today because that's evidence that God's not finished with us yet. True hope is only found in one place. And that's Jesus. Where is your hope today? Where is your hope?